and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Hello, and welcome to Cows in the Field. This is uh, yet another movie podcast. I'm Justin. And I'm Laura. Right, so today we're going to talk about Joyride 2001. It's a movie directed by John Dahl. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know much else this guy directed. but Rounders. Yeah, Rounders. And then he, I, I looked him up on IMDb. Basically, he went on to direct a bunch of TV. Yep. That's like his thing. That's it. Yep. Yeah. So John Dahl, Joyride, starring your favorite guy in the world, Steve Zahn. I love Steve Zahn. Paul Walker. So Steve Zahn as Fuller. Dad, didn't these guys don't have last names? Fuller. Yeah, they're the Tom Thomas twins or something. I think she gave she gave a okay, name. They're labeled not twins, just as Fuller brothers. and Lewis. Lily Sabisky gives them a last name at some point. Right, Lewis, played by Paul Walker, mm-hmm. the late Paul Walker, and Lily Sabisky playing someone named Venna. Mm-hmm. Strange name. <laughs> right. So. Another important fact about this movie, written by J.J. Abrams. Yep. Your favorite. The J. Abrams. The J. Abrams. Um, so where do you want to start? Where do I want to start? I. You might wonder why we picked this movie, of all movies, um, following up on Departed and Terminator 2. We like this movie a lot. <laughs> I feel like we've watched it several times. We really enjoy our, our early 2000s horror film. Genre. I do in particular. I think this might be more of a Laura's choice than a Justin's choice, uh, which is how we landed on it. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely more of the horror genre person. Yes, correct. Um, I mean, do you classify this as a horror movie or as a thriller? Well, Letterboxd did not classify it as a horror. Suspense? Um, what is the truth? Suspense and thriller. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was looking at horror movies in the year, and uh, when I filtered, Joyride was not there for horror movies. So it turns out Letterboxd disagrees with me. I had classified it as horror in my mind um, because it sort of feels like a piece of all... There's... Um, this is maybe a, like an evergreen genre, but I felt like the late 90s and early aughts, there was like a, a teenage... Teenagers in Trouble horror movie genre um, that was particularly strong at that time. Okay, can you give me an example? Okay, well, I'd say Scream kicks it off in 1995. Um, and then... Wait, you mean like this, like a second wave of this? Because yes. certainly Teenager in Trouble has been a trope in horror movies. For well, I said time. it's evergreen, but yeah. I it, it might just be that I... This was when I was like coming of age yeah, and at yeah. a time when I was watching horror movies uh, or at least had them in my consciousness because I was scared of them at the time and came back to them later. Um, but yeah, no, I'm thinking about like the, 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 the wave that kicked off in 1995 with Scream and there was, you know, I know you did last summer and a Final Destination and a lot of those franchises were from the late 90s into the early 2000s. And then really this is on the end of things because the next year I think is t- 2002 Ring. The American mm-hmm. one, because J-Horror has been percolating mm-hmm. in Japan already. And then I think movies start to shift towards like most of the horror movies in the next coming years are going to be remakes of Japanese horror movies, mm-hmm. which often do involve teenagers in trouble, but they have a different flavor. Yeah. These are very American it's, in my mind. It's a little more supernatural. And mm-hmm. this is, I mean, you know, I think 
I actually want to argue there is a supernatural element to this movie, but we can get into that. Okay. But yeah, uh, great. So, okay. So when's the, do you remember when the first time you saw this movie? Like, would you remember why this movie is important to you? I I have a, I have a, think, I think I know when I first saw it. Okay. I think I first saw this movie when, so this movie came out in 2001 and um, I would have been, um, I would have been a senior in high school or no, yeah, I would have been a senior, right? Because I graduated in 2002 and it came out in October 2001. So I believe I saw this movie for the first time. It's possible I saw it in theaters, but it's actually more likely that I saw it for the first time at a friend's house. And um, I, yeah, so I think I remember just like sitting on a couch, you know, watching this movie, you know, quite like enjoying it. Like yeah. it's an enjoyable movie and, and, and then just some follow up questions to set the scene. Was it a sleepover? No, 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 no. Were there boys sure. and girls? Probably. That's fun. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there was. (laughs) Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. It was fun. It's like a fun movie and it's a movie that stuck with me. And, you know, rewatching it now, it's it's interesting because the that's so of a time. Like it's so it, it it is 2001, but it really feels like it's the vestiges of the 90s. And that's one thing I'm gonna. That's a big sort of theme that I want to get into is yeah. the 90s and what was going on in the 90s, the cultural context in which this movie comes out of, and I think what is going on in the movie, why it like tapped into something. I think very palpable at that time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to revisit now because we're facing, it's like the issues we were facing then are just so different from the ones that we face now, like 20 years later, basically. And um, so it's kind of, it's like going in a time machine to, to, in a way, like, you know, a more innocent time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even though it is dated, I think it's really nicely rewatchable because it's, um, everything revolves around a really analog thing, CB radio, which was kind of considered old school at the, you know, they make jokes about it being like prehistoric internet, um, in the movie. And, you know, so there's not any cell phones that look really funky any, you know, um, that that often gets in the way of like early 2000 movies when you go back and look at the technology, uh, and there's no crappy special effects. It's just like a straightforward thriller, um, so I think that's partly why it's so rewatchable. So shall we take a time machine back to 19, the 1990s? Because Please. I think it is relevant to to understanding what is going on in this movie to sort of know where we are in the 90s. And just really for all of us who might be listening who are like, oh, yeah, the 90s. What was that like? Uh, well, let me tell you, <laughs> the period between 1990 and really when this movie came out, which is 2001, it's a pretty serene period, all things considered, and especially in light of everything that's been happening in recent history. Um, the Cold War has ended. It's apparently the longest stretch of peacetime expansion for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, since starting in 1991. There are really no wars uh, happening, at least U.S. wars happening, between the Gulf War and the Iraq War. The Iraq War is 2003. So I think really it's, you know, it's a period of prosperity. But then what comes with prosperity? Boredom, contentment, navel gazing, I think, to a certain extent. And that's, I think, borne out in the movies of the 90s. And you get a lot like Forrest Gump. You get Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. These are movies that are looking backwards to a time when there was conflict and you know, now we can kind of look back at like, oh, we, you know, the history ended, right? We're in this glorious time where we have the luxury to just like reflect on the the crazy past. Uh, and, but then of course, it's also a time that comes with a lot of boredom, right? You, we've reached a kind of 
pinnacle of civilization, so to speak, and in the, in terms of economic prosperity and everything, uh, low unemployment, everyone's doing well, the middle class is thriving, and then you get a movie that wins Best Picture in 1999, beating out some really good movies, you get American Beauty, which wins Best Picture in 1999. No comment on American Beauty as far as a movie. I mean, I'm fine on American Beauty, but but I think it really, in a way, it's a capstone movie for the gener- for that um, that decade because it's a movie that's just about Malay, the Malays of the middle class, like about just being feeling like you have no meaning in your life because your life is so unbearably boring. But that's because every need is met. Every need you could possibly have has been met. And you're just like, what else is there to life? Right. And I think that really sums up the 90s in a certain respect. Um, the other thing that you get in the 90s, which we'll, I really want to talk about more, is the rot is like that's the time when Gen X sort of moves into the workforce. And um, I think that is a central theme of this movie is, is both a, a, the culture that arises out of the 90s, including this culture of sort of boredom and malaise, and then also the rise of Gen X and the conflict between the Gen Xers and the baby boomers who, um, you know, who are still holding the power, so to speak, while the Gen Xers are kind of up and coming. Mm. But anyway, this isn't a political podcast. This is a podcast about Joyride. (laughs) Joyride. A movie about getting in the car and going on a joyride. So what happens in this movie? Paul Walker, he's got a crush on a girl, Mm -hmm. Lily Sebesky. She... Goes to the University of Colorado Boulder. He goes to the University of California Berkeley. Fancy guy getting into UC Berkeley. But he likes Lily and he's about to fly home. I don't know where he's going home. New Jersey. New Jersey. He's about to fly to New Jersey and she he's been chatting with her. She's in her underwear. He's got his roommate. He just gives him the CD player. To, he's like, it's 3 a.m., man. If it's 3 a.m. where he is, it's like 5 a.m. where she is. Yeah. She does ask because she's keeping him up. He says no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think they might have got their time zones crossed. <laughs> um, and she's like, well, you know, what does she say? Like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, how am I going to get home or something? I don't, how does this start? She wants to decompress. She doesn't want to go home right away. Okay. She actually, wants to go home slow. Let me flag that. Okay. Because taking it. Easy and decompressing, a bit of a calling card for Gen X. Okay. I just said that now several times, but yeah, uh, you know, okay. I, I've been doing a little bit of research on Noted. Gen X, not Underlined. my generation, but <laughs> taking it easy, taking you know, g- traveling and seeing the world rather than building your career, kind of a one of the you know prototypical Gen X features. Okay. Uh, okay. So she wants to chill out, see the see the U.S. a little bit. Maybe go on a little road trip. Paul Walker's like, I got a car. Eh, no car. Does not own a car. <laughs> Lies. He has a MasterCard, though. So he could, maybe he's going to, maybe he's just going to buy a car. Mm-hmm. He buys right. a used car. Well, you know, let's not get crazy. He doesn't buy a Porsche. But yeah, he buys a pretty cool 1970s, I think. Yeah, 71. That's an important year. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. 1971 don't, car. Don't forget that it's date. Pretty 1971. Sexy. And he's going to go pick her up. But first, he's got to pick up his deadbeat brother who's in jail again in Utah. Yep. He's going to bail him out and then take his brother to Colorado. And then the, the original plan is to dump him and then get the girl. Yep. But um, Steve Zahn has other plans. Zahn is the brother. Yep. Um, he's not a deadbeat, but he's a bit of a goofball. He's a bit of a goofball. And so, yeah, they're on their way to um, 
to go pick up Lily and right or yeah, Lily Venna. Venna. And um, they decide to pull a prank. Right. Yeah. Prank using the CB radio, which they just install in their car because they have money. Uh, and uh, somehow Zahn knows a bunch of CB codes. Yeah. Right. Not He's clear just how. like Mama Bear, Papa Bear. He's he knows how to do it. And the, a certain guy call, you know, is calling out to hear what hear what's up. Rusty Nail. Rusty Nail wants to know who's on the who's on the road and everything. And uh, what is it? Zahn says you got to pretend you're a girl. Right. And Paul Walker does a pretty good girl. Yeah. Well, the thing is, as I pointed out before to you, not on the mic, that Paul Walker, he sort of looks like a girl. I mean, he has the like very feminine features. Yep. So watching Paul Walker, you're like, he he kind of could just be a girl, right? Like, you know, he could just do this whole, he could just bend the gender and just go for it all the way. Um, so he pretends to be a girl. They string along rusty nail. Things go south. It's not a good idea to try to set up for humiliation a trucker who's lonely. Mm-hmm. He's not having a good time. He's out on the road long hours. Yep. Are we going to go over the whole plot? No, I just wanted to. That's the central. That's the there's set. things I need to get to in okay. my discussion. No, I know. You've got four pages of notes. So, so I'm just, I'm yeah. just checking. I was just looking at you like, is this what we're doing? No, but I just okay. wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone is, not everyone who's listening may have watched the yeah. movie. And, and, you know, so they set him up. He, he kind of gets humiliated. He thinks he's going to go meet a certain person named Candy Cane. That's the girl Paul Walker's uh, mm-hmm. pretending to be. And it's really just some guy at a motel that they they thought was a jerk. And um, yeah. And then uh, why don't you tell us what happens to the guy in the motel room? He gets jaw removed. Yeah. <laughs> Rusty Nail uh, grabs him. I don't know where we don't, he kills. Well, we don't see it happen. We don't see it happen. But we find out that this this other man has been found, uh, you know, on, on a highway median discarded. Uh, he's alive, I think, but coma. he is missing. He's in a coma and he's missing his jaw. Yeah. His lower jaw. So he's got no jaw, but, you know, he's otherwise OK. <laughs> um, yeah. So don't fuck with Rusty Nail. Don't mess with Rusty is Nail. What you're, is what we're finding out. Yep. And uh, and they will find out for the rest of the movie because Rusty Nail now has a vendetta against um, these brothers. Yeah. And and Rusty, honestly, Rusty Nail may be a little bit underwritten in the following sense. He He seems to want an apology. He gets his apology. And then once they pick up Lily, he seems to want more. Mm-hmm. Namely, he wants to humiliate them and maybe capture and torture Lily and have, you know, I mean, so it, it's unclear sort of what Rusty Nail wants. But, you know, he's a bad guy in a silly horror movie. So what more can we want? Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't overthink it. Well, is that what we're about to do? I think that's kind of the point of this podcast okay, is to great. overthink stupid Let's get movies. Get into it. One of the things I think that feels particularly time stamped about this movie is is the cast, Paul Walker, Steve Zahn and Lily Sabisky being the three uh, leads. And really it's kind of almost a chamber piece. It's just them. There's a couple of other characters that come in and out and you never really see Rusty Nail. Um although it is um Rusty Nail is voiced by um Ted Levine, although uncredited, right? which is kind of bananas. But this movie kind of comes at the peak, I'd say, for all three of these actors. Um, 
or at least for Paul, Paul Walker's career then becomes defined by Fast and Furious. But Paul Walker just started popping up. He's in ni- 1999. He's in She's All That and he's in Varsity Blues. Uh, in 2000, he's in The Skulls. And in 2001, he's got Joyride and Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious came out that June in 2001. Um, and in this move, in, in 2001, he's 28. And then from there on, his career is a lot of Fast and Furious movies. Um, the next one is in 2003, Too Fast, Too Furious. Steve Zahn, meanwhile, he popped a little bit earlier. He's older. He was in Reality Bites. Speaking of Gen X, he was in Reality Bites in 1994. Uh, in 95, he's in, he's got like a role on friends and he's in crimson tide. And then 96, he's in that thing you do, which is like my connection with him. I watched, rewatched that thing you do. I don't even know how many times as a kid. And he's such a goofy character. I loved him in that, in that movie. And then he kind of has like a thing where he's just like the like funny friend in rom-coms. He's in uh, You've Got Mail in 98. He's in Forces of Nature in 99. And then 2001, he's got both Joyride and Saving Silverman, where he's paired up with Jack Black um, as the the two the two sort of goofy friends that are trying to save Silverman. Yeah, I like that one. And then I think... Oh, I remember like Yeah. And then after that, he's kind of like the funny guy. Like he's in Daddy Daycare after that. I think they just decided to let Steve Zahn be like a goofball and not try to have him be like a romantic lead or any serious character ever again. Because um, I think he's a little bit miscast in this movie. Yeah. So what, do you want to say what you had in mind by that? I mean, because I, I agree that that I think he he's kind of the instigator and almost like a second villain in a weird way in this movie. And it's just casting someone that goofy... Yeah. So I thought a little bit about whether or not it would make it would be better to have Paul Walker and Steve Zahn be flipped in their roles in this movie, mostly because Paul Walker actually had been kind of a baddie in a lot of these movies. I actually haven't seen Varsity Blues, so I don't know what his character was, but and she's all that. He's the bad guy. He's the guy that um, convinces Freddie Prince Jr. to have a bet. And then I think he might like sexually harass like he. He's not a I remember him being like real deliciously bad in um and she's all that like full steam ahead bad and same with the skulls there's two characters him and um and Joshua Jackson's character and he's the one who's kind of like the rich evil um cabal guy um who's like deep in already with the skulls um and then you know I think he's a good guy in, in all the Fast and Furiouses. But my point is just being that he's he's really good looking, he's really slick, and he can pull off kind of a like a, a bad guy um, with a with a charming veneer. Like he's he's um, he's so beautiful, like you almost need to like be suspicious of him. And he, I think he does that well. So I think he could have been um, kind of the bad boy brother who's the instigator of the prank. Uh, I think he could have pulled that off really well. Whether or not Steve Zahn would be a good uh, foil to that, I'm not sure. But I think it is it's Steve's on so silly. It's hard to imagine him when he sort of spouts off his philosophy. But like, who cares? You're going to be a hunt dead in 100 years anyway. Like, I don't take responsibility for anybody. It's hard to buy coming from, you know, silly Steve's on where like my favorite line that he says in um in uh, You've Got Mail is when he says he needs to buy some eucaly- like eucalyptus candles because they make his apartment smell masse. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Like he's like a goofball. A um, so it's it's a little bit hard hard to buy. Yeah. I think it's interesting. So these these two guys are both playing younger in this movie. But oh, yeah, I mentioned Susan's 34 in this yeah, movie. I mean they're but they're both <laughs> firmly Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. And that that is the thing that I think to me unlocks this movie because I think it elevates it in a way beyond 
just being, you know, a fun kind of schlocky horror movie, which is that I think it's a movie about generational conflict. It's a movie about the conflict in particular between the rising power of the Gen X generation and the sort of declining power of the baby boomer generation. And so to set this up, I mean, obviously the characters in the movie are Gen Xers. They're played by Gen Xers and so on. Rusty Nail is clearly a boomer, right? He he pr- presumably, I would even guess he's a Vietnam vet, right? He, mm-hmm. he reads so much like, I mean, he, he's got all these like, murderous tendencies and <laughs> right i mean and and so you know he's 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 got all that going on and um so i think thinking of the movie through that lens of this kind of generational conflict was what opened it up for me and one of the things that when you when you when you really start to think through what like is the difference between the gen x and the boomer generation a couple things jump out and, and I, I wasn't totally sure myself. And then I was doing a little bit of research to figure out like, well, what, what characterizes the boomers versus the Gen X generation? And I think at the end of the day, the main difference is that, you know, the boomers came of age at a time when there was deep distrust of the government, this like potential for, you know, different, um, forms of government right that people were communists and whatever and they were sort of duking it out there was protest against the war people stood for something and then that segued into the excesses of the 70s and the 80s right which really just like destroy the country as, as far as as far as i'm concerned as far as like i think history sees right you have all these excesses of things like drug addiction um aids uh environmental damage unregulated expansion of capitalism, defunding of the social safety net, all these things. And then the next generation coming up is then the Gen Xers. And the Gen Xers, they come into this and they see all these things that the boomers, you know, said they stood by, but then it didn't really stand by, right? They all just like got white collar jobs and destroyed the government and and destroyed the environment and stuff. They didn't really stand for the things that they said they stood for as hippies, right? And I think the Gen Xers were just cynical, and they just detached from that. They're just like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm going to tune out and listen to MTV and just like, that's it, right? And so that's why they were called the slacker generation, right? I mean, among that was like the, the Linklater movie that sort of characterized them. Um, and But I think it's also important to note that, of course, the Gen Xers had the prosperity to be able to make those choices, to be able to be like, whereas the boomers were like, we got to work really hard and it's all about getting ahead and like fighting for, you know, working 60 hour work weeks and stuff. The Gen Xers were like, my dad's never home. Right. Was that worth it? Like to have an absentee father? I want to have a family life, right? I don't want to work 60 hours a week. I want to just like chill out. I want to see the world. I want to have my own life. Uh, But of course, they also had the economic prosperity to make those choices. Why? Because their parents were rich, right? Because their parents had that economic prosperity from working hard and being being in the right position and being buoyed by the previous generation and so on. So I think this, of course, is going to lead to a great amount of friction, right, between these generations. You've got these hard worker generation baby boomer who who like feel like they're entitled to everything because they, you know, and granted, they, you know, they were like the the. They were a fantastic generation. They created a lot of interesting, important culture and they, you know, whatever. Um, and then you got the Gen Xers who are just like, yeah, whatever. I mean, of course, there's going to be a huge conflict there. And in this movie, the conflict is comes down to the point of, I think, prank culture, which is this thing that arises in the 90s, I think, in its, in its um, 
you know, or at least becomes mainstream in the 90s and is a direct distillation of the Gen X mentality. And so I'm thinking in particular in pop culture of shows like Crank Anchors, which is the one where like they would like call up. Is that the one with puppets? Yeah, there would be like puppets and stuff. Yeah, Crank Anchors. Um, This a lot of this is late 90s, early 2000s. But this is the time. This is is where we are. Uh, Tom Green show where Tom Green would always be like going into like various stores and pranking people and stuff. Jackass. Um, the Ashton Kutcher one punked, although that does come a little bit later than this. But, you know, it's it's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, also skate culture. Right. Which really right. embodies this idea of like, yes, yeah, so you boomers like built all these like office parks, but we're going to like skateboard. Skate in them. Yeah. And, like, did people did Bam prank and skate? Yeah, that's the idea is that they're yeah. all it's all together. And, okay. you know, I have to admit that I was part of a group of friends mm-hmm. who, you know, who were very active in the sort of pranking scene in in denver we were we like to go around and you know of course we were a bunch of suburban white kids right we had no we didn't we weren't worried we were going to go to jail or something right right? we weren't we had no no consequences to what we were doing and that i think is the real idea of the gen x what's going on in culture at this time is that there's like what's going on in this movie it's like we're just gonna prank this guy and who really cares? Like, it's fine. Like, just take, can't you take a laugh? Right? Like, who cares? Right? Mm-hmm. But the guy they prank is a boomer and he's a serious guy. <laughs> he's a lonely. That's, that's the thing. Don't prank boomers. They don't, can't take a joke. They I mean, don't that's like the it. thing. They're serious people. They do not want, you know, young kids getting in the way of them and their work. And I understand that, you know, that's a very mature perspective. Okay, but that's, I think, the ultimate, the central conflict of this movie is, yeah. is it's distilled through the generational conflict. The prank is the example of that. And what what it is, is it's this fight over like, well, like, what is the right value system? Is it like hard work or is it work-life balance? Is it success or is it having the time and freedom to do what you want? Is it long hours and showing a dedication and loyalty to a job or is it being pragmatic about the work, right? Like getting what done what you need to do and then going home, right? So I think like that, it's really this conflict between these two things. And if you think about it, Rusty Nail, he's this guy, he's a he's a career trucker, right? He's like a serious guy. He's like, this is my career. This is what I do. And like these kids are coming in on the CB. They're messing around. They're being jerks. Don't mess in the CB. Yeah, like just, just let me live my life as a trucker. Like why do you have to come in here and do this? And that's, I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Cause I mean, that's what we were doing as kids, right? As teenagers is like, we'd go to like some office park and like, you know, go into the office and just be stupid. And you know, they just, these people just want to do their jobs. Right. And like, we're coming in and being jerks and stuff because we think it's funny. Um, but you know, so I, I, what I'm trying to say is, uh, I think Rusty Nail is the hero of the movie. No. Well, no, I do think there is a, <laughs> like a, a weird tension though. I mean, the movie turns and then like, Basically, the halfway mark, when they get Lily Sabisky, you think, I mean, you know it's not going to be over because the movie's only halfway through. But it seems as if, like, what happens is there's a great there's a great um, action scene in which they almost get run over by Rusty Nail's yeah. tr- uh, truck. And he demands an apology, and they finally do it. And then he backs off, and he's just like, oh, I was kidding, too. And uh, and drives away. And they're like, I, I guess, okay, like, we, we've we've solved the problem. Um, but then it turns out Rusty Nail's a freaking psychopath, yeah. murderous killer, yeah. um, and, <laughs> like, you know, likes to talk about taking people's fingers and jaws off. So... You know, then, as you said, like it sort of gets unclear whether or not he wants his apology or wants to humiliate them or wants to dis- dissect them. But 
you might think in the first half of the movie, like you do have some empathy for Rusty Nail. Yeah, he's a lonely guy. He's a lonely guy. And these guys are in these, you know, the boys are twerps. They yeah. are. And they're um, privileged, like they're privileged jerks, basically. Totally. I mean, they yeah. have money. They have their, and at one point the, the, um, uh, they're kind of harassed at a bar and they're called, the guy calls them a college boy. Right. Mm-hmm. It, they're, they're, there's this blue collar, white collar conflict as well. That's happened, you know, kind of bubbling under the surface. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's interesting. So I think what you were alluding to when you asked me when you thought I had a little speech to make about 90s horror movies. But I was thinking about movies in which like pranks have gone bad Mm. or in which teenagers have done something careless or reckless or pranked somebody and they're getting their comeuppance in like the context of a horror movie. I know you did last summer. It was a hit and run. I thought it was a prank gone wrong, but it was a hit and run. They run over somebody and I think try and cover it up. And then somebody saw it and they know what you did last summer and they're getting picked off and murdered. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Or, I don't think I've seen that movie. Um, you know, I was actually looking at Lily Sabisky's career and she, in 2000, the year 2000, she was in a movie called Here on Earth. And the description is a rich college kid is taught a lesson after taking a joyride that ends up destroying a country restaurant or a country restaurant. So uh, I think there is kind of a, 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 a little mini genre of yeah. movies in which teenagers kind of get theirs yeah. Yeah. from being careless yeah. or or um, thoughtless yeah. or pranking, which is it's weird because I think those movies are for the teenagers yeah. and yet there's like almost like this boomer yeah. uh, retribution that's happening through the movie. Like we're like, it's yeah. like yeah, we're yeah. watching them well, learn their lesson who, the hard way. Exactly. So who's <laughs> acting in the movies? Gen yeah. Xers. Yeah. Who are producing the movies? Baby boomers, right? Yeah. Like, so the, you know, the director of this movie, by the way, is born the same year as my dad. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I'm no, no, <laughs> yeah. totally like, yeah. this is a movie with, like but the, it's written by Gen Xer. It's written it's by written J. Abrams. It's written by Gen Xer. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I, yeah, we're going to so get to this. Yeah. yeah we're going to get to the J. Abrams thing. Yeah, no, for the sure. The J. Abrams of it all. No, yeah. I, <laughs> but that's what I think is so interesting is that yeah. I think this, this movie is a distillation of a class, of a, sorry, not a, well, it's a, both a class, but also a generational conflict. Mm-hmm. And then it is like this, like, you know, baby boomer fantasy of like, yeah, these fucking kids. Like, just like, wouldn't it be great if like Ted Levine just like decided to like rip their jaws off? Right. Yeah. Because because <laughs> he hurt that guy's feelings real bad. Well, also because they don't embody the right values. Right. right. They're like slackers. Like they don't know what it's like to fight in a war. They don't know what it's like <laughs> to, you know, protest, you know, the government and stand for something, a, a true ideology to like fight for change, to be at like a Woodstock and like, you know, change culture. Culture, they're just like you know benefiting from the fruits of our labor like that's yeah. the idea right yeah. and i think that that's i don't know i but find it, that such a more interesting thing than just oh rusty nails a psychopath right but it is interesting because you know you know who's not watching those movies this joyride my dad like boomers um but it's for it's for gen xers it's for millennials i don't actually know if that's younger. true i mean i think i think our parents would have watched this movie when it came out i think my dad might have watched this movie when it came out i i, I think it was for everyone i think and i think that's part of what is appealing about it is that it hits all it looks like it's ostensibly for kids and for teens to like hold each other's hands in the theater and all that sort of thing but it's secretly a boomer revenge story and that i think <laughs> victory for everyone right that's hitting all the the, the pieces of the pie right right um, well know, there's you, always been these theories about and they talk a lot about it in, in the movie scream too about like movie horror movies actually being quite conservative and their like moral values yeah. you know if you have if you have yeah. sex then you then you die yeah. um you know and if you prank people you die yeah one more thing about rusty nail as 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 well two, two more things actually about him being being a, basically a prototypical baby boomer um he he's a hard definitely hard worker he's he's if he has kids which let's hope he doesn't 
he's a very absentee father, right? He's on the road for long stretches of time, you know, out and he's not around, right? Um, and secondly, um, you get this generational difference in the music, right? So the soundtrack is all like kind of grunge, right? Late 90s stuff, like alt rock. Old 97s. Well, yeah, exactly. And then the music that when Rusty Nail captures you, mm-hmm. he puts on 60s pop music. Yeah. Right. So yep. Rusty Nail, you know, he's got that like old vibe going. He's mm-hmm. got the, you know, he wants to bring it back to the 60s. And, um, you know, can imagine back when that. You can just abduct any lady you like. Yeah, you know what? The good old days. And, you know, whereas. <laughs> I'm sure Rusty Nail would be very, he'd be the first to complain about the soundtrack of this movie. He doesn't like old 97s? Yeah, whatever. Come on. Stuff. <laughs> um, okay, real quick, J. Yeah, Abrams. To J. Abrams. I think this is relevant to, to this very point. So J.J. Abrams is the director slash writer who is the most indebted and in love with Steven Spielberg. He's definitely, I mean, maybe if he's not the most, he's the most Gen X director. He's most in love with Spielberg. And you could think of his entire career as basically one giant homage to Spielberg. And this movie is, I think, one massive homage to Spielberg. In fact, so much so, let's, let's just go through it real quick. So the, the, the date of the car, the year of the car, 1971, is the year of the Steven Spielberg movie Duel, which is a movie about a deranged truck driver running down a poor a, a guy in a car, basically, and harassing him. And then, um, yeah, and you never see the truck driver's face, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically this movie. Mm. Um, Steven Spielberg's first movie um, came out in 1971. Second point. Now, you weren't as into this one, but... I don't buy this one. Um, Sorry, folks. So Rusty Nail decides he his mode of killing is rip people's jaws off. <laughs> Right? Jaws, 1975 Steven Spielberg movie. I think compelling. Um, another third, third argument. Uh, crucial scene in this movie, Cornfield Chase. Cornfield Chase, also E.T., very important scene in E.T., 1982 Steven Spielberg movie, E.T., the extraterrestrial. One, oh, go ahead. Counterpoint. Cornfields are like staples of horror movies and, and, you know, horror October feelings generally. They're always in, uh, you know, whenever you go to a haunted house, they got cornfields, right, yeah, corn mazes. Although this movie takes place in May, so. Tricksky. Um, one last argument. Yep. All right. This might be even the most sort of reaching, but okay. Spielberg, um, both Abrams and Spielberg are people who wanted to look back and venerate the the generation prior. So think about Spielberg venerating the silent generation with his movies like such as um, Raiders of the Art, Lost Ark, which is takes place basically around World War II, uh, Empire of the Sun, World War II movie, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, and so on. He's obsessed with that genre, right? Um, and then you've got Abrams obsessed, perhaps equally with um, with the. Uh, um, with the baby boomer generation and with in, in particular with um with spielberg's work but I, I mean in a way abrams is more interested in this in a metatextual way because he's in his he's wants to venerate the sort of the heroes that came film heroes that came out of that generation of course among them spielberg but abrams has also done you know for luke he's done the lucas thing he's done star wars he's done star trek mm-hmm. he's done mission impossible right these are all sort of stalwart you know, things from probably from his childhood and so on that were 
um, you know, created by that previous generation. And he, he himself is very much sort of looking back just in, just as much as Spielberg himself was looking back to the prior generation. Yeah. And I think this relates to the generational shift, but it also relates to a shift in cultural values in the U S and how you can read this movie, I think as, um, in a way, a, a violent sort of reaction by a conservative, um, by a conservative culture against, I mean, basically anticipating what we, what we experience now with Donald Trump is this violent reaction to feeling like the culture has, has ceased to be the mainstream of American culture and society. Mm. That conservative values have fallen from, um, you know, their cultural prominence and so on. white, men have you know de- not are not occupying or felt to occupy as as privileged a space as they once were um you know once did and um i think the the clearest place where you where you see this is in the portrayal of trucker culture throughout american history so i didn't know about this but i looked i was looking it up and i was i found it so fascinating that that so in the early days of the trucking industry um truckers were really portrayed consistently throughout uh, popular culture as the protagonists, right? Like, cause we, there was a real veneration of these men, right? Cause they thought the thought was like, well, these guys are really sacrificing their time with their family and stuff to be on the road, going these long haul trips and, and things. And they were uh, apparently considered the Knights of the road and they would help. They would, they would, you know, be thought to just help stranded travelers. So if your car broke down, like you could count on a trucker to help, you know, pull over and help you out. Um, apparently, so there's a chart-topping tar- trucker hit released in 1963 by the country singer Dave Dudley called Six Days on the Road. Well, I pulled out of Pittsburgh, rolling down that eastern seaboard. I got my diesel wound up and she's running like I never before. There's a speed zone ahead with all really is like a big part of this uh, culture. Um, but then starting around the 80s and then, you know, slowly like Spielberg dis- kicked it off in 71. Well, <laughs> I mean, there were here and there, but then yeah. starting in the 80s, that image slowly starts to, to, to dissipate, right? It slowly changes into where the truckers begin to be portrayed as the antagonists, mm-hmm. psychotic, evil, yep. hillbilly kind of, right? This, this thought that they're, they're these real negative stereotypes surrounding the trucker. Right. Yeah. And there's real like a middle America feel to this movie and that there's something sinister about the middle America uh, blue collar eyes kind of thing. Right. Like this this idea that like you get on the wrong you end up or like Texas Chainsaw. Right. This Mm -hmm. like fear of the out the like wild west of the of of the open expanse of 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 the american right and they're going from i mean they're like on like they're going from one coastal one coast to the other coast you know with the brief stop in denver right straight through a college town right they're going from berkeley to new jersey and they're like oof wyoming and nebraska yeesh (laughs) these people are weird now it could be i don't know what the answer to this is it could be that this changed for you know whatever broader reasons and culture is changing but it could also be that this changed because, and you're going to love this. Okay. So Am I? You might know, know about this guy because you're, you're a bit of a murderino. So um, Keith Hunter Jesperson, apparently, is a Canadian-American serial killer. Okay. Who murdered at least eight women 
in the U.S. during the early 90s. Was he a trucker? Yep. He <gasps> was known as the happy face killer Stop. because he drew smiley faces on various letters that he sent to the media and prosecutors. Oh, So he my was God. a trucker, a long haul trucker who would just pick up prostitutes and kill them. And this... This idea that there that there were a higher preponderance of serial killers among the trucker population sort of gained traction when apparently the in 2009, the FBI released the results of a five year long study investigating unsolved murders of prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And they found they had uh, 500 female victims compiled in a database, mostly killed or discarded at truck stops, hotels, and roadsides. And the FBI suspects that many were murdered by long haul truck drivers, some of whom mm. may be serial killers. Yeah. Well, they're loners. Yeah. They're itinerant. That makes sense. They're, it's the fits and, the profile. Yeah. And I mean, also using drugs. Apparently, you know, it's mm -hmm. a lot of drug use among, yeah. um, among uh, truck, truck drivers. And, you know, I think, you know, the, so these are all negative things and, and everything, but this is all part of the cultural, you know, package and beliefs about truckers. But I also looked up the, the trucker code and the trucker code, like the code of honor, it, it is something where you, you get a real sense of the the sacrifice that I think these these men make, you know, in the service of bringing us the goods that we want to buy on Amazon all the time or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, thank um, God for those truckers right yeah. now. Yeah. I'm not leaving my house. Exactly. And and it's it is a sacrifice because it's not like, you know, you go to work and you come home at the end of the day. It's like you go to work and then you're gone for weeks at a time, right? Away from your family. It's quite quite lonely. Um and um you know, I think that that is it's I can see, you know, how there's there's two sides to this. On the one hand, it's like we should venerate these guys. I mean, these are hardworking dudes who like you know, are out there doing an essential service for us. I mean, at least until the we, robots are doing that job. But but then on the other hand, you know, I think we are justifiably think they're a little bit strange because, you know, why would you want to get in a truck and just be away and alone for long periods of time? We must think there's something weird about you, you know, mm -hmm. that you just want to sit in a truck and, and it's like, ah, it's a dangerous job. Um, and you know, these are long hours. And, and so it is, uh, I, you know, there's two sides of this, but I think it is kind of interesting that the culture, culturally, we sort of went through both of them. Um, and then of course this movie is coming at a time when, as you pointed out, there's like every other horror movie was like crazy truck driver. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this year Jeepers Creepers came out, which is another road trip movie this, with the brother and sister, but also involves a, a murderous truck driver or possibly they see a, they see a truck driver like pulling a body bag behind a building. Uh, it came out the exact same year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's in the, it's in the air. It's in the air. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, I think it's a fun movie and it's, it's a movie that, you know, it's 20 years old, but it, it's still, it's still quite fun. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty contrived, but I, I like that, you know, they may manage to keep the suspense going. And I think that that's one of the things Jabrams is good at. Um, and you, you know, you, he, he has, he basically uses a lots of tricks. I and mean, that's the thing that Abrams is good at is he knows all these tricks and he throws them in there, right? The double fake out that he does mm -hmm. with the ice truck and everything. It's just, you know, it's good writing. It's good. Like, you know, he, he knows it's, it's, there's a pedigree to what Jabrams is doing, right? It's yep. Spielberg via Hitchcock and yep. right. And it, yeah. you know, 
Um, no, I like a lot of things, but I was thinking about why, you know, because there's there's plenty of late 90s uh, horror movies just to stick on. And why do we like watch Joyride more than once and considered purchasing it last? No, we did buy it last we night. We bought it. Yeah. We bought it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of good tension um, that that is quite simple. You know, just being in a in a dead end road and having a truck come at you. Yeah. Um, you know, there's it's uh, you are you are right than like you know J J Abrams does a good job of it. First, the ice truck comes at you, and you think that he's going to be the killer. Then then you get a sigh of relief, and then it turns out now the real killer is still coming for you. So you get a kind of you know bait and switch. Um, but that's just a really simple device. Yeah. Just you know being alone and and um, and seeing a car come at you and having you know the tensions coming from the bright lights yeah. and it's, it's really simple. Um, I think Paul Walker has a really natural charisma. Um, I like watching him on screen. I think he does a really good job. He plays things really subtly. I thought, yeah. I thought his performance was really good. Yeah. The R. best R. of the three of them. Yeah. Paul Walker real quickly on Paul Walker. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think it's sad because Paul Walker could have had, you know, he had a huge amount of his career still open and, and he, yeah. he very easily could have been, you know, transitioned to a more, you know, to a Heath Ledger type thing mm-hmm. where he, he did more serious and more interesting stuff. And, um, you know, he, he might've had it in him to do that. And that would have been, you know, really great. And, um, uh, but at the very least, you know, he was, he was a good looking guy who knew how to be magnetic <laughs> on screen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I thought he was, I yeah, the world is worse with, without him. I know. Sure. I know. Um, more things that I like about this movie. I like that it's a road trip movie combined with a horror movie. I like it. I like that it feels really American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that he, that he turns something really banal, um, into something really horrifying and nerve wracking, you know, j- trucks, we see them all the time. We don't think about yep. them on the road. We don't think twice about them. They're just like visual noise. And once this movie gets going, you're looking at every truck on the screen. Um, you you know you you realize that they're everywhere and yeah. you don't know which one Rusty Nail could be in. Um, he could be anywhere in a five mile radius. If that's the you know yeah. the CB radio radius. Um, and it makes something so sen- simple tense all the time. I think it's it's smart. Um, I also just like the time capsuleness of it. Yeah. I, I you know I wrote down things that are so ni- so two thousand one. Mm. Paul Walker's jeans. The jeans were. Uh, no cell phones. This movie would be over with it. Just like so Although many movies did, of the time. They did have cell phones at the time. They did, but they, but they pointedly did not have them in the script. Right. I think I, they I, were. You might choose not to have a cell phone. I think at actually that time this still. movie. Um, apparently, I, I read that Doll. It took him four years to get it made, which means this movie probably was written like four or five years before. That, that makes sense yeah. to me. That that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, just all of the clothes. I wrote layered tank tops with no bra. <laughs> yeah. Well. That's a moment. Is that a thing? That you it's do- a thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, especially the wearing more than one tank top. It's It was sort of like a little bit before the the wearing the two polos, but it was, you got to wear oh, like multiple I tank see, tops I with different see. colors. Yeah, okay. But but a bra is, you know, up to your own discretion. Um, and, then, and then maps, as you pointed out, just so many yeah, maps. Yeah. I love it. This is the type of map, time of map quest too, but mm. it's, you know, you probably wouldn't. They're making choices on the road. They can't go back to their desktop and print out. Yeah, did you ever have print. that big map book? Oh, yeah. yeah. Maps book. go? Yeah. The thing that was yeah. like a metro My sister area. Uh, tore out the critical page that had our neighborhood in it. I don't know. She's like, I don't know why she ripped she it out. She figured you already knew where you were when you got to that <laughs> page. So why did you need it? Yeah, no, it was pretty annoying. <laughs>
Um, what else? What else? Nineties wise was the soundtrack. Old yeah, 97. Soundtrack, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was, I was, I would have preferred a little bit more rap rock. You wanted more rap rock? Like you wanted some corn in there? Yeah. Or some, uh, um, Lincoln Park or who, who else would have been big at that time? Kid Rock. Wow. <laughs> wow. 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 I, would they have been listening to Kid Rock though? Like maybe, maybe Steve Zahn's character oh, you would know be. What? You're right. Because they're college, college, they're college kids. They're, they're, and they're like Richie's. They're not gonna, yeah. yeah. Kid Rock wasn't there. They're gonna be like, like listen to Dave Matthews. Yeah. They were. <laughs> crash into me all right so yeah that's that's happening but i was thinking about just to go back to the to the question of uh flipping the roles for paul walker and steve zahn or Mm. i was thinking about how i might want to make this movie better because you mentioned oh yeah okay so who you recast i wouldn't recast it i think i would just tweak Paul Walker's character a little bit to make mm-hmm. him less of a hero. It would be a different movie and I, they probably wouldn't make it. But um, I was thinking about, you know, he he's such a total goody in this mm-hmm. movie, except for that he that he goes along with this prank. And in fact, it is his voice of can- that is Candy Cane. Um, but he's kind of coerced into he's kind of like bullied into doing it by his brother. Mm-hmm. But it didn't take a lot it just took like a couple arm punches and like, come on. And then he does it. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about toxic masculinity. I was Mm -hmm. thinking about guys who wear their like goodness on their sleeve, like armor, and then feel that that because they are good guys, because they, that because they pronounce themselves as good guys, they deserve the women that they want or Mm -hmm. they deserve whatever they want. I was thinking about how well, like the character of Paul Walker you know, maybe he goes on to become like a banker who does shady shit because like it's in, because everybody else does because mm-hmm. it's in the culture because your boss does it. Mm-hmm. He seems like he's kind of weak. You know, he's not that firm in his in the morals that he espouses. proclaims, yeah, espouses. Yeah. And they could have leaned into that a little bit more. Like mm-hmm. if they had had him, you know, reticent to do the prank. But then once he gets into the prank, maybe it's his idea to have Rusty Nail meet them at the motel. Because in the beginning, they're just playing with him by, like, getting him to say embarrassing stuff like, I'd take off your bra. Mm-hmm. It's Steve Zahn's idea to have them. It's it's the brother's yep. idea to have them actually, like, yep. meet up in a hotel. But I think it would have been more interesting if it's, in fact, Paul Walker who suggests it. If Paul Walker, like, you find out that, like, he's just the same in terms of not really giving a shit about other people. Yeah. If you give him a little push. If mm-hmm. he gets in the right context, if he gets around the right people. Um, but you know, um, instead they have him be more of a goody two shoes, um, who just kind of get, and he's, you know, guilty about it afterwards. And, um, that's the scene in which he feels really bad about it. And Steve Zahn's like, who gives a shit? Like, this isn't our fault. Um, you know, you're, I always just think we're all going to be dead in a hundred years. I totally agree with you. As usual, we don't disagree about anything on this podcast, but I will say, I think we can I, start working on that. Yeah, if we you need want. to start disagreeing more. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I do think that he, I think the, because it's a mainstream movie, they need to have that character that the audience can identify with the pro, you know, the, that sort of audience surrogate character. And yeah. if that guy is too complicated, mm-hmm. the audience can check out. And so I agree. It would have been a much better movie, but it, it, you know, it might not have made it past the. I know, you know but Paul producers. Walker would have been really good at it because we've seen him be a baddie before, right. and I was and like I was thinking about that scene where he gets pulled over, um, 
he gets pulled over for speeding in the very beginning because he's going to go pick up his brother. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go see my brother. I'm going to pick him up from the from jail. I haven't seen him in five years. So this is kind of a good deed scenario. He's kind of talking himself mm-hmm. out of the ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, he's smooth. And, you know, I if they had played with that more, if he was a more ambiguous character, I think that w- it would have been a better movie, but not wouldn't have gotten made. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we'll send John Dahl some notes. And we'll yeah. see. <laughs> like you have notes, notes for your 19 year old movie. Yeah, go back in time and fix this shit. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, um, I do, I do think that um, we need to end by saying our favorite lines from the movie. And you know, my favorite line is. Am I supposed to think of a different line besides your favorite line? Uh, no, I mean, if you want to pull up the quote page and see if you can find a line that you I like think we more. should just end on our favorite line, and you can do it. All right, so I think we're going to wrap this up. And uh, we appreciate you all for listening, if you made it this far. And if you didn't, then... We understand. We understand. Yeah, like seriously, it's a, you got to... We are going to rusty nail style vendetta until you get an apology. Yeah, We will run works. you into a tree. Yeah, we, first of all, we're going we're gonna to Paul Walker style buy a truck, uh, a tractor trailer... With our MasterCard, our parents' MasterCard, and then we're gonna track you down, CB radio you, and then we'll we'll pin you to a tree. Just as a footnote, I know we're ending this, but I forgot to put it in there. They do say their dad is a plumber. Really? Yep. But they don't act that way. It's a misstep. I don't think they really, you know, that might have been like the third, fourth iteration of writing it, and mm. but they certainly act like rich kids. But yes, they say their dad is a plumber. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I didn't even catch that. I was going off on like how rich they are. Okay. But you know, then again, that was a time when a plumber could buy a house in America and like live comfortable middle-class life. Sure. So, you know, you know, we're all, our generation is so screwed. Anyway. Um, uh, thank you for listening. Um, I realized that I didn't explain what my, um, view about the supernatural element to this was basically it's that, the disembodied voice of Ted Levine is sort of haunting this tractor trailer, representing the entire baby boomer generation, okay. bringing their wrath against the Gen Xers. That was the idea. He's sure. basically like the ghost of all the boomers. Like, <laughs> he's the he's the he's the spiritual uh, embodiment of uh, boomer vengeance um, mm-hmm. coming to claim coming to sort of claim them their yeah stake against the Gen X slackers. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that's obviously not true. Okay, final final words? I think you should just do the quote. All right, so let me get in here. I want to talk. No, wait, no, that's not it. He goes, I need to find Candy Cane. If I abandoned this project, I would be a man without dreams. not only my dreams. My belief is that all these dreams are, are yours as well. And the only distinction between me and you is that I can articulate them. <laughs>